Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello, Australia in the World listeners. Darren Lim here from the ANU, here as always with Alan Gingell from the AIIA. Here is part two of our conversation with Gary Quinlan. Gary, we haven't talked much about the bilateral relationship, but I want to reverse the usual question here and ask you not to judge Australia's relations with Indonesia, especially given your recent role in it, but Indonesia's relationship with Australia. It's undoubtedly true that we think more about them than they do about us because their immediate neighbourhood is so much more complex than ours. But when their thoughts do turn southwards, how are we seen as a partner, a threat, an irrelevance? And is there a difference in this regard between the senior leadership and the wider public? I was thinking of Jokowi's speech down to the joint sitting of Parliament in Australia here in February 2020, which you were at, I guess, in which he, he used very warm language. Australia is Indonesia's closest friend, he said, and he drew a parallel with the movie The Avengers, which Darren Darren will be able to explain to us after the podcast, and, and said, when the forces of good unite, the Avengers assemble and the common enemy can be defeated. So how do you how do you explain these differences? <laughs> I mean, President Widodo is a very clever, very smart retail politician, and he knows audiences that he talks to, and that's both overseas you know, as well as domestically. That's in no way to say, however, that allowing for a certain amount of you know, political hyperbole, you're addressing the Australian Parliament, but it's it's actually what has he done? What has Indonesia done? And he concluded the speech, you know, by saying, and this might be thought to be hyperbole, but it was bold of him to do it. If he'd had any opposition at home, for example, on this thing, he said, look, you can't choose your neighbours. You can choose your friends. These are the three, three sentences. Australia is Indonesia's closest friend. He also said, and he said this after the last ASEAN leaders meeting, bilateral meeting or summit with us earlier this year, and in the Indonesian media, he said, Australia and Indonesia can be the anchor of the region in terms of what we do together and all the rest of it, but can be the anchor. Now, they're, they're good comments because they do you know, reflect some deliberation by Indonesia over the last couple of years about their own position. You know, they, they, they make the same assessments as us about what's happening in the region, emergence of China, changes, you know, in the role of Japan, India and all the rest, technological change, ecological change, all of these kind of factors. They make the same assessments. They know what's going on. Their policy responses are inevitably going to be a bit different. But the point is they made the assessments the same time we did when we were doing our white paper on foreign policy. And one of their conclusions, the most powerful one, I guess, similar to us, that you had to be resilient and you needed resilient partners. And who are your partners going to be? You need to diversify your partners. And very consciously and quickly, they moved to with us and India. And, you know, we concluded these 
comprehensive strategic partnerships. Now, people might think that's just a kind of diplomatic rhetorical flush or flourish, whatever, but it's not. I mean, there's substantial plans of action attached to them. But the real key is Indonesia only had one of those relationships, and it was China back in the same time as us, around about 2013. We only had two others at that stage, China, Singapore and Indonesia, 2013, 2016, then 2018. But the thing is, Indonesia, having had a number of years, you know, they had a relationship like that with China, suddenly decided we need more. And the end of May 2018, they signed one with India. Modi visited Jakarta. Three months later, they signed one with us. Prime Minister Morrison was in Jakarta. And it was a key aspect of him being there. But this was very deliberate by Indonesia to send a strategic message to us together, but to the rest of the region that we're serious about this, you know, small small group of countries where we're going to give that priority to. Since then, of course, Australia has signed them during COVID with both India and Malaysia and what have you as well. And then, you know, the economic partnership, which President Widodo extremely keen about. I think one of the things that comes out of that is his expectations of us, I think, are probably higher than we can meet on the economic side. We clearly have got great potential to do more in trade and investment, been interfered with by COVID. But I think he thinks we are able to do more with Indonesia, particularly in terms of his skills needs. He's got to skill up 60 million people by 2030 as new entrants to the job market than we can. And of course, COVID has intercepted the skills package under the Comprehensive Economic Partnership. But it's good for him to think Australia will will work with us and we can work with them to fill the gaps we've got in areas where they're talented and where they've got something to give and help with. So we're not only relevant, but we'll never be, you know, the main country that they're dealing with in any way, but we'll be part of that equilibrium. And he sees us actually as a significant part of that equilibrium. And and when he says words like that, is reflecting a broader view within the Indonesian elite that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, look. That's true. I mean, there'll be those on the economic side who are disappointed and think, oh, well, you know, it's going to take so long to develop and upgrade the economic relationship. So there'll be disappointment. Although I've got to say, you know, over the last year during COVID, trade between Australia and Indonesia only went down 6%. That's not bad. And in fact, parts of the Indonesian trade profile increased, selling more to us in different ways. So not big stuff. I'm not talking about major turnarounds, but there was some. Plus, we're now learning there's more Indonesian investment in Australia than we realised. A lot of it had gone via Singapore or Hong Kong. So there is more substantial engagement there. So the economic side, because they're so mercantilist, want to see the benefit and all the rest. When you look at the security and defence establishment, however, you know, the things that I take as totemic in this regard and new are Darwin, and the marine presence. The Indonesians are now very interested and would like to get involved, you know, with training and everything else, because they see this as a stabiliser and is useful to the new equilibrium in the region. They won't say that publicly so much. Secondly, when we produced our defence strategic update July last year, You know, the history of those things in Australia is elements of the Indonesian military and everything else will come out and say, gosh, this is a threat to us. We're going to have to build up. What are the Australians thinking of? Or is this all about Papua? They were supportive. 
they said, well, this is about a stronger Australia and that's a good thing for us. And Prabowo's team actually, not him personally, but out of his office came some comments in those terms. Now, that's a change. That's a big change. The door's open there. And the other one I'd mention is that the jury's out on it at the moment still, of course, is their willingness to sign on for a new trilateral partnership, India, Australia and Indonesia, with a focus initially now on economic recovery post-COVID, but maritime cooperation, mainly in the Indian Ocean, you know, not in the South China Sea, because everybody wants to make sure strategically there's stability in that region. These are important indicators, they really are, in how things are going. Gary, I want to reverse the lens and, and, and talk about Australia for a moment. And I acknowledge that this is a bit of a cheeky question, but last year, Alan lamented in the Lowy poll, the 2020 Lowy poll, that only 39% of the respondents of Australians saw Indonesia as a democracy. And at that point, trust was actually at a, a low point. And I do want to note that in this most recent 2021 poll, we've seen a 12-point bump, so that almost half of Australians are saying they trust Indonesia. But still, on, on some level, these numbers are disappointing. But here is my argument for why they're not much of a problem. Because while the public may not have the most positive view, the feelings of the Australian public are not strongly held. And as such, public opinion doesn't really operate as a significant constraint on the Australian government when it comes to managing the bilateral relationship. Basically, the government is left alone to manage the relationship as it pleases. What do you make of that argument? If I can rephrase it provocatively, would you as ambassador have preferred that Indonesia got the equivalent level of attention from the media and the public to that of China and the United States? Well, the answer to the question you've just posed is yes. But look, I guess I should think of a cheeky response if you're asking a cheeky question, but I'm not quick enough to think of a cheeky response at the moment. But look, that figure of 39%, which was an increase, you know, from the past, but we'd had periods where it had gone down. I mean, what was really alarming five years ago, four years ago, when I went to Indonesia, the figure had gone down into 26% or something, and then it bumped up to 31, and then it went to 32 and 33. So it was a very, you know, kind of kinetic figure and worried me quite a lot. The latest figures, it's interesting when you deconstruct them a little bit, and this is why I'm mentioning it, over 50% of younger people recognise Indonesia as a democracy and say it's a democracy. And that's an increase by 100% over those preceding two years, actually. So that's good. Part of that, you know, I think reflects the fact that younger, the younger generation through things like the New Colombo Plan in Indonesia has been pre-COVID the preferred country for Australian students, you know, for short-term periods to go to Indonesia under the New Colombo Plan. 10,000 in the first four years, not bad, if you don't include the pilot, which the first year is breeding a cohort in Australia among the younger generation a little bit more attuned to Indonesia as Indonesia. Plus, the degree of engagement by social media between younger Australians and Indonesians, because in that brilliantly tech-savvy younger population in Indonesia, really, really inspiring, is growing. We see that when we check and, and test the you know, new Colombo plan students 
how are you following up? What did you learn? The degree of engagement that continues by those students is great because it is over a longer term going to, going to help. Plus, there's the whole new economy, digital economy, startups and so on, which is good. Look, on these figures, the reality is that in any relationship, well, maybe that's too broad a comment, but in most of these things, public perceptions are always slower than the reality of what is changing. That takes a while for people to, you know, get out of images they have about another country and all the rest of it. So that's one factor. But when you look at some of the other statistics, I've got to be sure I get uh, this right, but a majority of Australians say they think Indonesia is friendly, but it's less than should be. It's not quite 60%, not quite 60. 96%, this this really struck me when I read the report, the polling of Australians think that Indonesia is economically important to us at the moment. Well, it's not, except in a number of particular industries. We want to make it important to each other. So it's an interesting perception. 96% think, yes, it's really important to us economically. 94%, by the way, think, to go to your point, Darren, about governments, think that governments are managing the bilateral relationship well. So that's good. Now, what all this indicates, we've got no major problems. The problems of four or five years ago, and we're always going to be hostage to that kind of thing. But both governments, there's no doubt about this, are trying to keep the radar alert to the extent they can on some of these issues and want to be able to manage them quickly. I was a bit worried, you know, back in late 2018 about what the outcome on issues related to Palestine would be, for example, the impact on Indonesia, because Indonesia at the time said, look, you make your own foreign policy. We're not telling you what to do. But, you know, if you do certain things, we're going to have to respond because, you know, action and reaction, you know, law of physics. So we could always be hostage to that kind of thing. But the governments really are committed and are serious to limit those risks to the extent that we can. So that's a good thing. I think in terms of would I like to see it given more importance, the answer is yes, and it's not just because I was ambassador there for three years and what have you. It's because the regional calculus strategically has changed fundamentally, big time, for us as a nation. And so we share the same strategic ecosystem with Southeast Asia, the neighbourhood, with Indonesia. Indonesia is the fulcrum of Southeast Asia and Southeast Asia, the fulcrum of the Indo-Pacific. So it's vital that we have a stable, successful region. It gives us strategic depth just in terms of our own national interests. So, of course, I would like to see that given the prominence as a result. You know, I do think we've got the rhetoric right. A lot of our rhetoric on that I think is right. But it's the question, you know, really, what do you do to operationalise that kind of recognition of how, you know, how important strategically for our future the health of the neighbourhood is? So, yes, I'd like to see it given far more prominence particularly through, you know, development cooperation program, which is such a fundamental arm of foreign policy. And, you know, our cuts have been too serious over the last few years at the very time when we need to increase that exposure in the region in order to shape the strategic outcomes. It's a linear equation, you know. I mean, it's interesting. So you ask, well, what, what can we do? How do we operationalise this? And you've mentioned the developmental cooperation part, which of course, my mind then immediately goes to the step up in the South Pacific and sort of the conscious effort that the government is making to engage more with our South Pacific partners. 
is the step up or a step up the right framing for thinking about how we could mature the relationship further? Or is the strategic significance, as you've also mentioned, of Indonesia mean that we need a different framing for how we could elevate our level of engagement? Yeah, look, Southeast Asia is more ambiguous than the Pacific Islands and the Southwest Pacific because there's so many dynamics which are bigger, number one, and the political, economic, social, and everything else, in a way in which you know that kind of scale just simply doesn't exist, and, and many of the issues, like Islam, for example, and the future of political Islam doesn't exist. So I think you know, you've got to recognise we're dealing with parts of the same strategic ecosystem, but different in terms of the dynamics they go through and are going through at the moment and, and how we need to try and shape them for the future. I don't think we need to worry how we're sort of perceived in stepping up our engagement in Southeast Asia because the door is open. In Indonesia's case, as I just said, they very deliberately chose to strengthen their relationship with us and to send a strategic message about that to everyone else. And they're defining our role with ASEAN in such a powerful way as well. So the door's open and, you know, it's recognised it's in both our interests to work in those more resilient, you know, partnerships and all the rest of it. And look, when you think about our history with, say, just take Indonesia again, strategically at key critical junctures, we've worked intimately with them on shaping the region, APEC. Alan's there, and I mean, it was involved in many of those kind of areas about the Bogle goals and all the rest of it. Um, the ASEAN Regional Forum, which Ali Alatas and Gareth Evans worked intimately on, and you had Indonesia's convening power to make a major change in the region for ASEAN, but with Australia's support and heft as well, diplomatically, intellectually, to help get that forum up and running, as, and it's still there, the Cambodia uh, Peace Settlement. Again, Ali Alatas and Gareth Evans, where we did a lot of that work, intellectualising how it would operate down to the detailed preparation of manuals. And then Indonesia, of course, was involved in that process as well, but had that unique convening power. So those kind of junctures have been very successful with Indonesia in the past. The comprehensive strategic partnership is meant to leverage off all of that, you know, to bank all that and make this kind of cooperation systematic routine and all the rest. So that's a bit of a change there. So I don't think we need to worry about how it would be perceived. We're perceived well in the region because with all the imperfections that we've learnt from each other and over the last 50 years, we've been there and we've been fundamentally fairly reliable. And with mistakes on both sides, you know, I'm talking about ASEAN and other countries within the region, but we've become a trusted partner of choice in many of the things we do with them in institutional governance, economic, social policy, technical assistance. And we do a lot, but we don't do enough. There's a vacuum in the region strategically. The region needs choice and choices, and they want choices, and they want more engagement by us, you know, to build up their institutions, governance and everything else. And public health clearly needs to be a really good focus, of course, primary essential focus, primordial focus in the future. We've done health stuff, of course, but we need to do, by my assessment, so much more. At the end of the day, we need to be the kind of trusted partner of choice who can't do everything on the scale that, you know, one or two other countries might be able to, but we can do a lot 
to help you know, shape the region. And we really do need to step up to that challenge because we're talking about our own success. It's the success of the same ecosystem we live in, you know. I'd like to see a national foundation on Indonesia created as well here in Australia, you know, along the lines of the government's creation of the National Foundation on China. That foundation with China is is necessary, it's needed. But one with Indonesia would have the prospect of being able to have more influence, I think, because, you know, a national foundation with China is not going to change the calculus of thinking in Beijing at government level. But in Indonesia, it's a different ecosystem we're working in. And a foundation could be so much more influential over time with all those different points in the community in Australia, professional community and others, and in Indonesia itself. So I think it's time to do something major like that as well, to bring a lot together. Gary, Australia and most other states operating in the region say, you know, very nice things about our support for ASEAN and its centrality in Southeast Asia. In my experience, ASEAN success rests heavily on active Indonesian leadership just because of its overwhelming weight in the region. So by, yeah. the, by the time you come to the end of your posting, what were your conclusions about whether ASEAN can continue to carry the weight that the rest of the world is putting on it? Okay. <laughs> look, first of all, let me be so self-evident and everything else and say, look, if, it did, if ASEAN didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. Mm. I'm one of those. I used to be Australia's you know, senior official for three years to ASEAN. And, you know, frankly, not all officials in DFAT and elsewhere who've dealt with ASEAN extensively over the years have had quite the degree of, and I don't want to sound pompous, but commitment, I think, that some of us have because all the calculuses for us in the region have changed. So ASEAN has become more important as the regional strategic calculus has changed. So ASEAN centrality, which, you know, a few years ago, people might have thought, oh, yes, you know, what does that mean, actually? Well, it now means strategically a great deal because they're a key part of how we try and, you know, develop and formalise some kind of equilibrium strategically in the region. I mean, I guess the other thing I'd say is that sometimes... You know, we all have bigger expectations, I think, of what ASEAN is about. And, you know, inevitably, when you get a sort of a sharpening of strategic allegiances, people want people to line up and declare themselves and be on their side, all that kind of thing. Well, the world doesn't operate like that. Um, and number two, it's actually good that it doesn't, because we don't want that. We don't want that brittle polarization of that kind. So I cut a lot of strategic slack to ASEAN in that sense. Look, to them, to ASEAN, and I think I said this perhaps a few moments ago, is, is all about strategic space and supporting each other to give each one of the members greater strategic space vis-a-vis -vis the major countries in the region, the two main ones who, you know, uh, kind of got the fault line which will define the future. And it works for them in that sense. And it's a far more subtle dynamic than sometimes I think many people realise how the 10 of them fundamentally are attached to that principle, even those who are closest to one or two other major powers. So I'd say all of that. The other thing for ASEAN, of course, is economic integration. You know, the RCEP, Free Trade Investment Agreement, agreed last year, was all 
very much driven by ASEAN, with China, but also driven very much by ASEAN. So there's some achievement there, which they focus on big time and all the rest. I mean, it's not zero sum, of course. You need to strengthen ASEAN, and ASEAN's been doing stuff to strengthen itself. But it doesn't mean you can't also strengthen and develop as individual ASEAN countries your bilateral or other minilateral, you know, engagements. So all of this goes together. I guess I'd make that point. One thing that, you know, sometimes surprises one or two of my kind of strategic friends when I say, look, ASEAN adopted this Indo-Pacific outlook, not a strategy, an outlook, which was a definition of what's Indo-Pacific, its importance, and ASEAN's importance as part of that. And then what do we think we can do, you know, to work together? And some people say, oh, yeah, look, you know, <laughs> read it. It doesn't really say much. Well, it does say much. It says a great deal. What it articulates, and it was agreed, and it was an Indonesian initiative to do it, in which Widodo was personally invested against the advice and preference of a few other ASEAN leaders who thought he was moving too quickly, what it does is articulate exactly the same operating principles that we do and Japan does and other countries about the Indo-Pacific. Now, I think that's an achievement. And it also, of course, sort of then sets out some of the things they do together, you know, maritime cooperation, connectivity, that kind of thing, climate change. And it was Indonesia that took very much genuinely took a lead on that. So, you know, I think, I think as I say, that's a good thing. So I'm not quite sure if that answers precisely what you had in mind, Alan, but, yeah, I mean, they're my initial thoughts. Yeah. So. No, it doesn't answer precisely, Gary, but I suspect you don't want to answer precisely. So let me end with another question. That's a first. <laughs> Has ASEAN's performance during the Myanmar crisis surprised you? Look, initially, Indonesia's leadership in corralling the ASEAN countries, okay, it took time and everything else to have a leader's engagement, including Myanmar, was a good thing. It took a bit a bit of time and a lot of effort, and there was resistance, obviously, uh, among a few of the ASEAN members. But I thought the leaders' meeting, and it came out with a five-point plan for engagement, and all the rest of it was a good thing. But then it sort of disappeared into the sands, particularly the appointment of a very senior special envoy you know, who would be the sort of apex, if you like, of their response and get there to Myanmar and try and bring what influence and, and, and get some agreement, you know, by the military to various aspects of humanitarian relief and what was the electoral trajectory going to be and all the rest of it. Inevitably, it's taken so much longer. In fact, it's only the last, I think, two days that they've agreed within ASEAN with a lot of difficulty. The special envoy, the deputy foreign minister of Brunei, but where that's going to lead, I don't know. Indonesia, in the early stages in particular, was very forceful. We know this within ASEAN meetings, Retno Masudi, to get ASEAN to realise that this was a test for ASEAN in the eyes of everybody else looking at ASEAN and being told that if ASEAN centrality is to mean anything, within a new, you know, kind of political calculus for the region, then this was a test. There had to be a response. And it's not doing all that well in relation to that. Now, we're always going to have too many expectations about what will happen with the Myanmar regime itself. 
which lived for donkey's years, in charge, ignoring the rest of the world and saying, well, bad luck. And then, of course, you've got a couple of other major powers, China and Russia in particular, who provide them with a safety net. So it makes the dynamic of dealing with them very uneven, frankly, if they want to stick to the positions they've always occupied. But it is, it's disappointing. But, you know, I wouldn't rule everything out yet, but it's disappointing. Gary, a different subject entirely. As as part of a series of monographs in which we try to throw light on aspects of diplomatic tradecraft, the AWIA is soon going to be publishing a short book by one of your colleagues in New York, Michael Bliss, dealing with Australia's most recent term on the UN Security Council and the legacy of that. As I said earlier, you were the permanent representative at the time and you're very kindly written an afterword for the book. Now, to be honest, I, I re, I've read it a couple of times, but I reread it before this, and it's very hard to see much to be optimistic about in the conclusions you reach. I'm going to quote a few of them. The era of the so-called liberal rules-based order, which was effectively guaranteed by the US, is over, and it's unlikely that any single power could shape global order in the same way again. Authoritarianism is more pervasive, democracy is in retreat, the post-COVID world will be more unstable and less resilient, COVID-19 has revealed a dangerous lack of global leadership. I won't go on, but I hope listeners will get hold of the book for themselves or come to the launch at the AAA in a few weeks. But it's a grim picture, Gary. Here in Australia, after a brief excursion down a Trumpian negative globalism side road, The current government has come back to the position of all Australian governments since the Second World War, that if you're a country Australia's size and with our range of interests, you are always going to be better off in a system in which the rules, whether they're the rules of trade or warfare or the environment, are jointly developed and then followed and in which Australia has played an active part in the shaping. So... I just wondered what your advice would be to the Australian government on how we can best continue in the circumstances that you have outlined to the continuation of an effective multilateral system. Yeah, look, those few comments that you quote, Alan, from the afterward that I've written, you know, to the monograph, just about the fact that is basically those comments relate to the fact that the world in which the multilateral system, particularly the Security Council, exists has dramatically changed. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's just a statement that this is the change that's happened hmm. and the balance of power in addition to everything else has changed and, and what have you. So what's the consequence of that? <laughs> and the consequence is you need more stepping up to reform the multilateral system to ensure it remains relevant and effective and the role of middle powers likewise should be stronger in taking that task on and making sure it works. So, you know, the effectiveness of the multilateral system, it doesn't just become, you know, hostage to US-China relations and Russia, of course, as a spoiler in all of this as well. So it's a fairly a fairly obvious conclusion, I think, Alan, and that is, you know, we have done the analysis in government, or government has done it, I didn't, about looking at the multilateral system, the so-called multilateral audit. What do all these things mean to us? How are they operating? 
How do they meet our interests? What do we need to do to make them more effective? And that's that's been completed. So all our multilateral, you know, memberships and everything else functionally across the UN system and politically have been analysed and we've made the right conclusion that, you know, multilateralism is essential and we've got to make it better. So having reached that decision, now we've got to do it and implement it. And we can't do everything, obviously. We have always been a significant player in shaping the multilateral system from the very beginning, creation of the UN. And there are key organisations in particular where we have a really big interest, but where we've had good established influence. We can build on that, particularly in coalition with other like-minded, you know, interested countries to do even better. So WHO, IMF, reform is needed, the WTO, and there's a whole bundle of others, you know, reform in international civil aviation, the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, all of these. So identifying what we can do with others to make these instruments more effective. And we should do it across the board, but obviously we can't do everything. So we really need to work out those key organisations where we are going to invest as a nation. I've just mentioned a few of them. Extra, extra, extra effort. We already do stuff to make them really contemporary. And that's necessary to buttress the multilateral system But it's also a counterbalance to being singled out bilaterally, just as a country with bilateral relations, which might be good or bad or in trouble, to say, well, we're way beyond just being, you know, a country with which you can deal just bilaterally. We have a significant investment and contribution, which we actively do, in the global system, which all countries are a part of. So you get my (laughs) meaning, obviously. So I think it reinforces our strategic position in relation to all of that. And look, you know, we're pushing on an open door with like-minded partners, and there's already, you know, work that's going on. But we need, we really need to dedicate teams to that, to achieve stuff, and to achieve it quickly. And the Biden administration, of course, with their far smarter and more intelligent view to all of this, would be allies. But we do need to make sure that we've got a broader remit of countries involved in these reform processes and that we're explaining to the developing world who are quite influential in these organisations and as well and should be what we're on about and getting those kind of coalitions, not just the usual suspects. We need to go beyond. And we haven't, you know, because of the retrenchment of DFAT staff numbers and pre-COVID, let alone with COVID and all the rest, we don't quite have the bandwidth to do some of the things like that that we need to do. So we need to extend the bandwidth, not try and do everything, of course, but we definitely need to do more in those areas. But that's pretty self-evident, I think, but that's what we should do, I think. One last question, Gary, and this is sort of another big picture one that is put to you as someone who has been around almost as long as Alan, as, as he led from the introduction about what you've seen in Australian foreign policy over the years. But I want to ask the question in a a slightly different way, given the tumult of the pandemic. When you have seen Australian foreign policy succeed, however you want to define that, can you pinpoint anything that's been distinctively Australian about the features of that success, the the causes behind that success? And equally, on the other side, when we have not succeeded... Is there anything distinctively Australian that's helping cause that failure? Okay, gosh. Um, 
Look, a key thing in diplomacy always is how others see us and then make an assessment about, you know, the value of participation with us, working with us, partnership with us, whatever. So you can maximise your influence that way. But that's kind of an obvious comment, I guess. It's not distinctively Australian, but it's what we have brought to many of the most successful things we've done, and that is we've been proactive. We've actively looked and thought, what are our interests and needs to be done about certain things? And then we've done it and patched together, you know, the kind of coalitions you need to achieve that result. I mean, the work APEC, I mean, there was so much academic and other stuff that went on for years about the region, then boldly, boldly, ambitiously drawn together, you know, in Bob Hawke in, in this case, in a speech in Korea. So what I mentioned earlier on with Indonesia, you know, the ASEAN Regional Forum, the Cambodia Peace Settlement, establishment of the Cairns Group's a good example, identifying, you know, back in the 80s, mid-80s, global trade negotiations and our interests as an agricultural producer were very clear. And we were a reformer, by the way, realising we need to reform agricultural stuff, but we identified it all, did all the intellectual work and then operationalised it systematically with other countries who could support and came on board. And of course, it still exists and in trade negotiations continues to be influential. And we're one of the three or four main trade negotiating countries in the world. And a lot of it derives from the Cairns Group, but a lot more than that. So it's really doing the intellectual work to prepare very actively and then getting out there ambitiously, you know, and building up the support for that. Now, all of that, to me, it's sort of, you know, it's it's just self-evident that that's what you would do. I guess people, people tell us that they think we're pragmatic. And my own experience is generally we are. We bring a pragmatic touch. You know, we are prepared to make adjustments and be flexible from initial positions that we might have defined, whether they're in treaty negotiations on chemical weapons or anything else. Uh, arms trade treaty is an example I was involved with in, uh, in New York and what have you. So I think that pragmatism, and we've got the advantage, of course, that although our national interests are obviously pretty clear to everybody, we're not one of the big global powers who are used to pushing people around or having their own way and sometimes might not be either as flexible or as pragmatic as they need to be, and sometimes, of course, don't miss achieving their own strategic interests in that process. So that's just the nature of the size of the country we are as a middle power and, and how we transact all of that. Oh, what is distinctively Australian that might cause failure? Despite what I've just said, I mean, there have been various you know, occasions, and I'm thinking more bilaterally, I think, where we haven't listened enough you know, we, we've been a very close partner with Southeast Asia for a long, long time in Indonesia and so on. But sometimes we were a bit brittle and not thinking enough of our, our own interests. The relations with the Southwest Pacific will always be very special. And, you know, it took us a long time to learn a good deal of the dynamics in the region and what all that meant and how we could respond. But look, that's just the nature of the beast. So I don't think it's anything distinctive about us which might have led to failure. I don't do failure, of course, so it's a very difficult, personally, so it's a very, uh, <laughs> that, that is a cheeky response at last. But So I'm not quite sure, 
One thing I am concerned about is we've got a lot of the rhetoric right at the moment, particularly in relation to the uh, region to the north and what have you, and, and the Pacific. But we've really got to make sure we implement that, what it means. What does it mean to operationalise the needs in our region now to prevent failure within the region? because of the effects of COVID, but also pre-existing strategic change. I think that's the one of the risks we're facing at the moment. So, you know, we've got to be really careful about that. Well, on that note, Gary, thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast today. It was a real pleasure. No, thank you. This concludes part two of our conversation with Gary Quinlan on this episode of Australia in the World. Thanks, as always, to Mitchell McIntosh for his help with research and audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you, and we'll talk to you again soon.